Hebrews 10 is striking in that it has what is arguably some of the harshest language in the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. Some scholars even want to go on record in saying we have the harshest words in the entire Bible in Hebrews chapter 10. What is striking about that to me is Hebrews 10 is one of the greatest passages in the Bible when it comes to the great saving power of Jesus. And it's not without reason that we find the greatness of Christ emphasized and we also find this sober harshness regarding those who would reject God's unique son. And so we'll see a little bit of both this morning. Basically, what we have at the beginning of Hebrews is how great Christ is, underscoring his sufficiency, underscoring his supremacy, that he is the ultimate priest, he is the, your one and only necessary priest, that he is the ultimate high priest, uh, that's underscored again and again and again, uh, if you want to use the Latin, that he is the pontifex maximus, okay, the ultimate priest, the ultimate bridge between man and God, Jesus is the one. He's the Pontifex Maximus. Then, in the second part of the passage, in light of his greatness, there's a call to us as professing Christians to make sure that we continue to embrace him as our ultimate mediator. That's the challenge side of things. So the first half of the chapter we might call exposition. It's the explaining of who Jesus is. That's what exposition means. It's the explaining. It's the reminding of who Jesus is and what he's done. The second half, to just keep it real simple, exposition. I think it's the first 18 verses, yes. And then 19 to 39, you have exhortation. Okay, If Jesus really is the ultimate mediator then you really need to embrace him by faith and continue to embrace him by faith. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and we'll follow that basic outline this morning. So let's jump right in and be reminded yet again in Hebrews 10 of who Jesus is as the ultimate priest, as the unique and sufficient high priest. So beginning in verse 1, the contrast regarding the Old Covenant system, the Old Testament system, you might say, and we jump right in in verse 1 by reading these words. For since the law, which would be shorthand for what we've been learning about, the Old Covenant system of sacrifices and priests, for since the law has a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, and the context here from chapter 9, the true form is Jesus, right? It, referring to the old covenant system, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see what he's saying? It's not really anything new in Hebrews. It's a re-explanation of what we've been learning. The old covenant system, sure, God could, could set that up. God did set that up. There could be benefit. As a matter of fact, there was benefit. But it is a shadow system, and it's anticipating the substance who would not be the shadow. It would be Christ, and it's not going to be a perpetual kind of sacrifice. It's going to be a unique once and for all sacrifices. And the shadow system, he uses that important word in verse 1, 
never, never can make perfect what we need. It can never give us what we need as far as a right relationship with God. The perfection that we need as far as mediation is concerned, the shadow system could never provide. But God was anticipating through the shadowy system the one unique high priest, the Son, who can indeed and does indeed provide reconciliation. And so it's really review so far in Hebrews in the first verse. But then we read verse 2 where it says, otherwise, and this is, you can't fault the guy for his logic. I mean, this, this couldn't be more logical. Otherwise, would they, the sacrifices that are repeated, not have ceased or stopped to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And do you see how logical that is? Don't, don't confuse the, the ongoing system with sufficiency. As a matter of fact, this is like one of those moments where you say, hello, light bulb. The ongoing nature of the system doesn't point to its sufficiency. It actually points to its insufficiency. It shows that, that, that it can't be the ultimate. In fact, look at verse 3 where it says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Well, that's not what we want. Who wants that? Who wants a system that says, Oh, by the way, you're guilty. We, we don't want a reminder of sins. We're, we're not saying, oh, isn't it great to have a reminder of our sins? We'll just keep doing it. No. What he's saying in the book of Hebrews is we, we don't want a reminder of our sins. That's not God's end game. What we want is removal of our sins, removal of the guilt. And a substitute, ultimately, it's going to be Jesus. And just in case you're like me and you went to public school and you need it made plainer, look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You really want to know the bottom line? It doesn't work. That's what it is. It's impossible. And so we need Jesus to come center stage. And that's what he does. Let's keep going. In verse 5, Consequently, Using logic terms. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is quoting Psalm 40. We'll talk more about that in a moment. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And you say, I kind of get it. How, why is he quoting Psalm 40? Ever so quickly. And remember what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is showing that this is the shadow system anticipating the substance system and it's not a sleight of hand. He's quoting Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David. David has just been rescued by God. And David's response to God for the rescue isn't, well, let me quick do a bunch of sacrifices. David knows that's not really what God is looking for in appreciation and thanksgiving. What God is really looking for is his life's devotion, that he would give himself to God in a life of devotion and obedience. 
Okay, so that would be the context of Psalm 40. And here we have Jesus. And you say, why is Jesus quoting Psalm 40? Well, this is Christmas time. We quote things like the beginning of gospel accounts these times of year. Matthew 1.1, where Jesus' genealogy says he is son of David. He's the ultimate David. Here Jesus is going to quote Psalm 40. And he's going to say, you've given me a body. Now it's incarnation talk. And I'm going to do your will. And think about what David would have known about himself, as sincere as he might have been, making an oath before God to do his will. Think about the people as they would think about King David as a big, as a big shot in the Old Testament, yes. But when you push things, David is going to fall short of actually, ultimately doing God's will. Jesus, as the greater David, takes those words and says, a body you've given me, and I'm going to do your will. And indeed, he is going to do God's will. The ultimate David, the incarnate son of God, to fulfill and do all the things that, that David or any other king, quite frankly, failed to do. And so he says in verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. They're, they're legitimate. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. There is a paradigm shift. There, the, the, you, you, have, you have Jesus coming as the ultimate David who is truly, genuinely, and in every way necessary. He is going to do God's will so that he can be the unique mediator, the Messiah King, the Messiah who is also priest. And then it says in verse 10, and by that will, don't, don't lose sight of the paragraph. And by that will, that is the, the Son doing the will of the Father. By that will, we, we who trust in Him, have been sanctified. We've been definitively cleansed, not needing ongoing perpetual cleansing by the Mosaic system. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How about this? Once for all. All that David might have wanted to be, he couldn't be fail to be but once for all we have the ultimate I have come to do your will sufficiency of Christ is what he's underscoring with an Old Testament kind of argument now by way of contrast is verse 11 and don't miss the contrast because the contrast helps us to see the greatness of Christ and every priest stands daily at his service now, that's an important shift, and you won't notice it if you, unless you're paying close attention. I'll just point it out to you. Every priest stands daily. He hasn't been talking about the daily functioning of the priest. He's been talking about the annual functioning of the priest and day of atonement. Okay, now he just broadened it to the daily sacrifices, not just the high priest. How about all priests, all sacrificial systems? The whole thing is going to go away with the coming of Jesus, not just the day of atonement, the grand one day a year, but the daily kind as well. There's no more need for any more sacrificing. There's no more need for any more priestly duties because we have the ultimate high priest who came to do God's will. 
offering, verse 11 goes on to say, repeatedly, that's what they have done, repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So again, the repetition isn't a plus, it's a minus. And if it's the same sacrifices that can never take away sins, we need a different kind of sacrifice that it will eventually take away sins. And it's continuously pointing to Christ. And you say, he sure keeps mentioning this kind of stuff a lot. Once for all, once for all, once for all. Contrast to daily, contrast, contrast to, to yearly. Apparently, it needs to be emphasized. Apparently, our propensity, our bent is to find mediation between us and God through other means other than once for all through the finished work of another. Pontifex Maximus, leaving no room for any others. So he just keeps emphasizing it. And you can see it as glorious and say, yes, I love Hebrews 10. And I do. Or it can chafe you and rub you the wrong way because you're not getting it and you, and you need to get it. Once for all sacrifice. See the significance and the greatness of Christ. See that that other system was a system of shadows and it was anticipating. It wasn't bad. It was getting us ready. But don't go back to shadows. Verse 12, but, the best theological word in the Bible, bar none, is the word but, as we see it so often, so strategically. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. What happens when that happens? It's accepted. It's done. It's sufficient. Remember, we just learned about the priest standing always because the work is never done. The son sits down at the right hand of the father and his work is done because he gave himself. But that's not all. Verse 13 says, waiting. We know he's not waiting passively because chapter 7 verse 25 taught us that he always lives to make intercession for believers. So he's there doing something, but he's also waiting. Maybe we would say actively waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Kind of comes out of left field, but it's a recurring theme in Hebrews and that's Jesus isn't done. Oh, his sacrifice is done. Oh, yes, atonement's been made, but he's not done with all of his work because... He's going to return, which is really encouraging when you're talking to people who are really struggling, especially being persecuted for their devotion to Christ. And you're thinking, can we get some help down here? Well, we not only have a priest in Jesus, we have a Messiah, Savior, King in Jesus, which is why Hebrews is referenced Psalm 2. He will rule with a rod of iron. Things will not always be the way they are now. There is going to be rest for the people of God. And he seems to, to interject that here for, for, for some encouragement and some hope in times of trouble. But let's get back to the priestly emphasis in verse 14 where it says, and you can guess what it's going to sound like is he just keeps driving the point home. For by a single offering, it's got sufficiency written all over it, a single offering he has perfected for all time.
time. I just love the verbiage. I just love to, to, to say it and hear it perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. We don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. We don't need anyone else. If we continue moving on, being the good Trinitarian that he is, he emphasizes the work of the Spirit as well in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and now he's going to quote the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, which we've seen in chapter 8 of Hebrews, chapter 9 in Hebrews. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He then adds, also from Jeremiah 31, this is really important. Don't miss verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Then 18 gives us the punchline of 17. The so what, the implication Where there is forgiveness of these, these meaning lawless deeds, sins, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And I shouldn't be all passive and quiet right now because this is the good part, but I'm out of energy. (laughs) 17 and 18... Let me take a breath and be able to raise my voice again. 17 and 18 are huge. Our Old Testament is telling us about this thing coming called New Covenant. Okay, Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And where you have the New Covenant from Jeremiah 31, you have the promise of forgiveness. Absolute forgiveness. Okay, Perfect forgiveness. And that tells us something about the work of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, because in verse 17, then we move to verse 18. If you have absolute, total, sufficient forgiveness, guess what? You don't need sacrifices anymore. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, that comes from verse 17, which is new covenant reality, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is logic on fire. This is logic on steroids. New covenant reality. Therefore, as the Old Testament promises, people talking to people who are very sympathetic to what the Old Testament says. Okay, let me quote the Old Testament. We've got forgiveness in a true, genuine, lasting sense. And where there is new covenant reality forgiveness, no more sacrifices. Don't need them. And you can see where this could rock somebody's mind where all they have known has, have been perpetual sacrifices. This is what we've known. But you've got to say, hold on a second here. You know, that wasn't very good. It wasn't a good prop. Pretended like I went to Jeremiah 31. Your Old Testament that talks about your Old Testament sacrifices is anticipating and waiting a time when there's a new covenant And there is true and lasting and sufficient and perfect forgiveness, which therefore would mean no more sacrifices. Again, bring it back to our level. Christ and his work is adequate, sufficient. He is the ultimate priest. He is the Pontifex Maximus. We don't need any other mediator. He's everything. Because he's atoned for sins once for all seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. We don't need any more sacrifices. 
Therefore, we don't need any more active priests. He is sufficient. Just to put it negatively, and maybe to help us understand, if there is a priestly system, it's not a new covenant system, unless the priest involved is the priest whose name is Jesus. If we have priests making sacrifices, it's not new covenant. And there's not been lasting forgiveness secured. And so we're in a lot of trouble. Folks in this setting are at a crossroads. Maybe, maybe the people being addressed directly aren't even the ones. Maybe it's been their friends or family members. They've known people who've walked away. And so the author to Hebrews is, is trying to make sure he's emphasizing to this believing community about how sufficient Christ is so that they too don't walk away. And so he's doing a great job of exposition, explaining. Let me explain to you the realities of Christ. And now what he does is he goes for application. Okay, he goes for application. And by the way, application just always gets you in trouble. Okay, just as an aside and just to take a little bit of a break for a second, it's always ironic to me when, when so many times people say, well, I just want more application. I, I, you know, the exposition is fine. I just want more application. And I just kind of smile and think, okay. Now, sometimes that's completely legitimate because the Bible gives us application. We're going to see application. And the Bible is applicable. Don't get me wrong. Don't be a hater. <laughs> but what's so interesting about application is, more times than not, the application actually is where the rub is. The application is typically what I don't want. Okay, just, just give me exposition. Just give me the explanation. Just, just give me the facts, ma'am. Sir, just, just keep it outside of me. Usually when we say, Pastor, could you give us some more application? We're saying, could you give me something lighter and give me stories? We don't really want application because application is finger in your chest kind of stuff. The author to Hebrews is about ready to get some hate mail from the congregation. Okay, He's going to get some emails. The tweets won't be good after this church service or whatever you want. Because he's going to say, if Christ is sufficient then your hope must be fixed in Him. He's worthy of your devotion and your lasting faith. But if you walk away, you're the adversary of God. And it will mean hellfire for you. And we would be foolish to keep application at a 2,000 year distance. Because we have our priests and our mediators and our temptations and our difficulties that cause us too sometimes to be tempted to walk away. And so let's take this application to heart, even though it might be hard, even though it might be, as some say, the most severe statements, at least some of them, in all of the Scripture. Now we move to the exhortation, verses 19 to the very end. Uh, Interestingly enough, he starts with a super long sentence, verses 19 to 25, uh, or originally one sentence, not in the translation I'm reading from, but the long sentence probably is picking up on, this is intense, this is passion, he really, really wants us to get this. 
In verse 19, he says, therefore, in light of all you've heard about the supremacy of Christ, therefore, brothers. I love that because he's, he, he's not just being the fire and brimstone preacher. Therefore, you punks, right? You guys are bad. And let me tell you, no, no. Therefore, brothers, there's sympathy. There, 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 there's love. And I really do care. Therefore, brothers, since we, so he's even including himself in this, since, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new, this is new covenant reality, by the new and living, that, that could be probably first and foremost life-giving, could also be living in that Christ is resurrected, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the curtain that used to separate from the, the most holy place. No, he, he's brought us there, and it goes on to say, that is through his flesh. We've got incarnation we've learned about, and then he gives of himself to be the spotless, perfect, atoning sacrifice, the priest who offers himself. Since we have this, this, this great, great access, there are implications you can't just say, oh, isn't that nice? No, keep reading in verse 21. And since we have a great priest, he's been saying high priest, here he's just using a synonym, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a word that's used in the New Testament for loyalty or sincerity, draw near with a genuine heart, a genuineness inside of you. You're not half devoted to this Jesus, and I think he might help us, but we got to do some other priestly sacrificing. No, the idea there is true heart, loyal, sincere heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember, he's talking to Old Testament-minded people, so he's borrowing Old Testament imagery with sprinkling and cleansing and, and ritual washings, but the context here would be Christ has done this. And this is our exhortation, at least part one of it. Draw near with a true heart. Because we have a perfect Savior. Exhortation, application, have your devotion to Him be genuine, authentic, true heart, sincere, not mere profession, not Jesus and. Reminds me, reminds me of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do notice, let's keep, let, let's keep moving now to the, to the next part of the exhortation. In verse 23, he gives us a little bit different angle. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I love the hold fast image. My hand still hurts from first service when I'm doing this so tightly. As I like to say and say so many times, it's a life grip, right? You're holding fast. You're holding on to him. He is your hope. Not to something else, not some other form of mediator, not some other form of priesthood. You're holding fast to this Christian, this uniquely Christian confession what is the unique Christian confession? Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. 
He's the one who came to give his people for to give himself for his people. Hold fast the confession of our hope. And do notice where the emphasis is. It's really ultimately on God. Yes, you must hold fast, but then it says, For he who promised is faithful. We're trusting in this God who made this promise, and so we're going to hold fast to that promise. Remember again in Hebrews and so many times in the Bible, hope is not hope so. It's based upon something that's been done outside of you objectively. Christ, through his work on your behalf, okay, finished work, and your trust, your hope is in him. It has to do with the future, yes, but it's not in self, it's in him. And he's worthy of hope. Our hope is worthy to be fixed upon him because his work is actually done. We're not, I hope Jesus can do it. No, it's the right, good kind of take it to the bank hope. He so did it that he rose again from the dead. And he didn't just rise again from the dead, he ascended. Yeah. So therefore, you're getting exhorted. Let me put it in my terms. Don't you dare let go of Christ. Don't you dare even thinking about embracing another mediator. It doesn't make any sense. And maybe I could be more of a pastoral like the writer of Hebrews. Brothers, don't you dare. <laughs> you know? We can't do this. And then another aspect of the exhortation in light of Christ's efficiency is in verse 24. So there's really a threefold rapid-fire exhortation. It's the uh, draw near with a true heart and then hold fast the confession. And now in verse 24, there's a third component. And he says, and let us consider. Let us consider. Let us focus our attention upon. Let us give conscious, deliberate attention to how to stir up one another to love and good works. Two things I'd like to point out there that I think are helpful. Number one is the context. It's not just a general statement. It's in the context of so we don't commit apostasy. We're talking about the body of Christ. There's a one another aspect. Let's stir each other up for love and good deeds. This is healthy as we function in the Christian community within the life of the church. Let's stir each other up. It's interesting, the word that he uses as it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, the stir each other up is typically used in a negative sense. Sort of like we would say, go stir up a hornet's nest. Yeah, let's go stir up some trouble. Let's go gossip You know, let's go poke our finger in somebody's eye and make them mad and get all in their business, right? I'm going to go stir up some trouble. Yeah, he's using that negative term probably for the sake of effect. You need to be that kind of person. But for good. You're busy meddling in people's business, stirring up love, Christian love, and the right thing to be happening. Let us give focus to that. Let us give attention to that. If Christ is a sufficient Savior and we believe that in our confession, so to speak, that should translate into a certain kind of one-anothering and we're trying to stir each other up. Trying to stir each other up. I'm trying to do my part today and bouncing the ball to you. Doing my best to stir you up and if it means to make you mad, no. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. In a good sense. In a good sense. 
fired up about love in the body of Christ in light of Christ's sufficiency. Then verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together. Isn't that interesting in the context about apostasy, people leaving the sufficiency of Christ? You say, that doesn't belong in here. That's talking about church life. He's only talking about individual life. Isn't that interesting? He's not only talking about individual life, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Old Testament covenantal terminology where Israel would neglect her God, the God who made a covenant with her. They would neglect him. And he's saying, using that verbiage probably on purpose, don't be like Israel was as a nation, neglecting devotion to her God. And how do you do that? By neglecting to meet with one another. One another's happening. Body of Christ things happening. I I find it kind of shocking that he puts this stuff in here. This wouldn't have made my sermon. It's going to now. In fact, I would like to preach a whole sermon series just dealing with this issue because it's fascinating to me. Typically, and I don't know about you, when you're going to try to help somebody, they're really struggling and they're having a hard time and they're thinking about, you know what, I don't really know if, if I've counted the cost here and following Christ, not following Christ. I've got so many questions and having a tough go of it. Quick on my list would not naturally be your commitment and involvement in the body of Christ. I'm not saying it's the only thing. I don't think the author to Hebrews is saying it's the only thing, but it's on the list. It's also interesting that he uses this word uh, meet together. It could be gathered together. And he's talking about it in the, in the context of more and more as you see the day drawing near, second coming kind of terminology. In 2 Thessalonians 2.1, which is a second coming kind of text, talks about how we are gathered together with the Lord. I don't know about this for sure, but others have suggested, and at least it's worth thinking about, that this is on purpose. When we look forward to Christ returning and fixing all of the wrongs, we'll be gathered together with Him. And as we anticipate that in the body of Christ, guess what we're doing? Living independent Christian lives. It's me and Jesus. No. Gathering together as we will be gathered together all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the context, warning, exhorting people who need to rehear about Christ's sufficiency that they do need to be engaged and involved in the body and body life. It's not okay. It's not a good sign when your friend is drifting and they just need some alone time outside of the church. And then everything will be okay. If I had to put together a little pastoral model from Hebrews, which I think would be worth doing sometime, they're in serious danger. Serious danger. Could be a road to apostasy. Body life. One person put it this way. 
the following warning about apostasy implies that people who deliberately, how about this, who deliberately and persistently abandon the fellowship of Christian believers are in danger of repeating the sin of Israel and of abandoning the Lord himself. So says Peter O'Brien in his commentary. Let's put it in the positive. One another's in an effort to safeguard and curb a tendency toward walking away from Jesus. As someone has put so crassly, but effectively, you can't love Jesus and hate his wife. The bride of Christ is the church. I would like to borrow that and tone it down a little bit and have it still make maybe a more profound effect. You can't love Jesus and neglect his wife and think Jesus is okay with that. It doesn't make any sense. Can you imagine if somehow you were nice to me and rude and obnoxious or mean or you just ignored my wife in the conversation that we would have for an hour? And you think I'm going to be good with that? Not neglecting meeting together. Fascinating to me. Fascinating is a safe word. You don't have to say convicting. (laughs) But all of this is meant to be where we really live and function. Well, at this time, uh, the captain has... Ask everyone to return to their seats and fasten their safety belts. We're expecting turbulence. Please leave the lavatories. (laughs) Secure your mask before you secure your children's. (laughs) Here's the harsh part, okay? Here's where it comes to us. Someone said this is the most blistering portion of the letter. Verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, don't take that out of context, the context we're talking about, okay? Half in, half out, committed to the one mediator, not committed to the one mediator, not meeting together, all of these kinds of apostasy kinds of issues. Is Jesus sufficient? Isn't he sufficient? If we go on sinning deliberately in this kind of manner, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, thunderously so is how that should be said, and I failed to do it. No more hope. No more atonement. No more sacrifice. You're smoked. If you reject the gospel of Christ and His perfect priestly atoning work. Verse 27 but a fearful expectation of judgment. Here, here's what you can look forward to. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Sheesh. And think about what he's saying. You're, you're on board with Pontifex Maximus Jesus, high priest, the only one you need, Or he uses the adversary word. And you say, I'm not against God. 
He's saying he's against you. Right? It's heavy, heavy duty stuff. But this isn't anything new to anybody who's been reading the Old Testament. This sounds like Deuteronomy 17. Notice the logic again, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Yep, I learned that in Jewish Awana. (laughs) Okay? Would be the kind of mindset. Yep, that's right. Get him, God. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 30, for for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. How about that? I mean, so, so much for pop culture's um, stereotype that, you know, God in the Old Testament, he's mean. God in the New Testament, he's nice. In, in this context, don't quote me out of context, I would like to go on record as saying, God in the New Covenant is meaner. A hundred million bazillion times meaner. He can be justly angry when we violate the shadow system. Still is law. To then send his own unique son, the one and only thing that ever cost God anything. And to have someone say, I don't think he's sufficient for me. I need mediation through someone else is what will eternally offend God And this text most certainly is going there. How much more? Pastorally, I have to say, please, please, don't, 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 don't lose your head. And think that you can be anything less than devoted to Christ as your righteousness as your supreme bridge builder. It just doesn't make any sense. It's spiritual suicide. Verse 31 doesn't let up at all. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we need to keep going, but he's going to be, he's going to get, Play, play encourager now, okay? Verse 32 then says, but recall the former days. This is what Moses said, by the way, in Deuteronomy 32. Tr- trying to get the people to wake up. Just, just remember how you used to be. Keep reading. After you were enlightened, you endured. You stood your ground. It's a military image. You stood your ground. A hard struggle, now an athletic image with sufferings. Okay, he's talking to people like you and like me saying, please look back to when you made your original profession of faith and your family hated you for it or whatever it might be. Look back and see where you have actually persevered in the past and see that it can be done. Find some inspiration from that. Find some motivation from that. Think back to those days as you're getting lukewarm and passive and lazy spiritually and forgetting about Christ. 
33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who uh, those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Context here is going to be in prison for their devotion to the to the faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How could that happen? How, how would that be when they're, they're taking the Christian stuff and, and denying them citizenship or things like that? Keep reading. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, which we've been learning about. It's seated in heaven right now. And then he says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence. It's confidence in Christ as mediator, which has a great reward. Look back. Now, next time, which we won't do on Christmas, I can't figure out how to do Hebrews 11 on Christmas, so I won't do it. But the next week, he's going to say, look back not only at your own life, look back at the lives of the great people of the faith. They, too, went through and endured hardships. But their focus was on that which is eternal. And so there was steadfastness. Learn from them to keep following Jesus. How about Moses? Hebrews eleven twenty seven. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Be like Moses. You want to be Old Testament dude? Be like Moses, looking forward to eternal reward associated with Messiah. And then he says in verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, that's fascinating because verse 7, verse 9, we've got the Son doing the will of God. And now, when you have done the will of God, well, now the will of God is... Trusting in the one who's done the will of God. Listening to God who says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, right? You may receive what is promised. Then 37 says, for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those. Let me be more optimistic here as your pastor is saying. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We keep having our faith fixed on Jesus with a life grip on Him. And so surely, surely we're not like those. Don't do like your friend did, so to speak. All of this boils down to a simple thing. If we can just boil it all down, it's all about your priest, isn't it? It's all about your priest. Who's your priest? Who's your high priest? Who's your ultimate priest? Who is your Pontifex Maximus? Okay, on the secular realm of things, people say, I don't have a priest. Well, that's called self-priesthood. I will mediate between me and God if there is one. And my good will outweigh my bad. And then the religions of the world have priests, have mediators, go-betweens, sometimes called gurus. Who's your priest? Who is your bridge builder? Who is your mediator? 
And Hebrews 10 is saying it had better be and only be Jesus. I would encourage you to keep your eyes open for mediators. In Hebrews, we've learned so much about the greatness of Christ by seeing Him contrasted with Old Testament priests. I encourage you to keep your eyes wide open and see what kind of mediators your friends have and see what kind of mediators other religions have and keep your eyes wide open. It's helpful. But be careful that they're not your mediator because that's what we're talking about here. I have opportunity. I'm going to do this myself. I'm not just going to preach and not practice. I have an opportunity to go um, out of the country uh, in the early part of the year. And on my way home, I have a layover in Rome. And one of the things, I want to see the Forum. I want to see the Colosseum. I want to see all different sorts of things in a real short stay. But I do want to walk the wall that goes around the Vatican City. I've seen a photograph of it. I want to see the real thing. I even want my picture taken by it, perhaps. I want to see that garage door, that golden and bronze. I'm told it's a garage door. It's the most beautiful garage door I've ever seen in my life. But I want to see that door, that newly erected door that says, Benedictus the Sixteenth, Pont Max, or Pontifex Maximus, the ultimate high priest. I want to see it because I can hardly believe it. We all have our priests. Whether it's Benedictus or whether it's yourself or your guru or whoever it might be, we all have our priests. We all think somehow we can bridge the gap between us and God. And God has said in no unclear fashion, it's my son. And how much more punishment will there be if you trample him underfoot and say, I'll go for another priest. I beg of you, I plead of you to do what the author of Hebrews is going to say later, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, with no other vision for anyone or anything else. Lord, thank you for our time together and thank you for contrasts. You've given us this great contrast in the book of Hebrews and there are contrasts all around us. Please, Lord, help us to evaluate our mediators and help us to flee from any and all other mediators and to cling with both hands tightly to none other than the eternal Son our righteousness who is in heaven now because his work is done and he's seated. And may we have big hearts and burdens for those around us who are struggling with these things and who simply don't know. And may we take opportunities to stimulate one another to love and good deeds specifically in this realm. In Jesus' name, amen.